What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans and ahead on The Exchange. More bank backstops coming to light over the weekend as U.S. officials reportedly considered expanding an emergency bank lending program. First citizens swooped in for SVBs, branches and deposits. And the flow of deposits out of regionals and into larger institutions has started to slow. Goldman writing they wouldn't rule out action from the Treasury if the stress returns, but the odds of a unilateral move appear very low. Their chief political economist will join us to discuss. And one strategist who is seeing strength in one part of the banking sector and with European stocks and some quality American names. He'll tell us momentarily which ones. Plus, the two-day hearing on SVB's collapse kicks off tomorrow with the FDIC chair among the witnesses testifying on Capitol Hill. We'll talk to House Financial Services Committee member Jim Himes about what moves he'd like to see on the FDI insurance, FDIC insurance front. Let's begin with the market action here, though. Um, Nasdaq's down, but Dom, it's good to have you we, back. It's good to be back at the HQ mothership, Kelly, right here next to you. So anyway, as Kelly mentioned, we're mixed right now. So we've seen some slowing momentum in the marketplace, and it, we are seeing some outperformance in the Dow. It's still up about two-thirds of 1%, 215 points, 32,452. The S&P, though, is now 39.78, so below 4,000, up about seven points, one-quarter of 1%. And again, the trading range, to give you an idea of why I'm saying we've slowed down in momentum, it's up 33 at the highs and we were pretty much flat at the low. So again, tilting towards the lower end of that intraday trading range. We'll keep an eye on that. And the Nasdaq Composite, as Kelly points out, the real underperformer down one half of 1%, 64 points, 11,760 the last trade for that Composite Index. One reason why is a reversal of some near to medium term trends where we've seen outperformance in technology and outperformance in tech, media and telecom type stocks. Look at this. The tech sector spider is up 16 percent so far year to date. Com services up 17 percent. Meanwhile, value sectors like real estate, energy, energy in particular is down 9 percent. That's a pretty big gap, as you can see here. So, again, the technology trade has been a real outperformer today, a little bit of a reversal there. So that's why the Nasdaq Composite perhaps showing that underperformance. Uh, regional banks, speaking of value sectors, also becoming a little bit more bid this morning, although we're off the session highs right now, except for First Citizens Bank shares. Kelly mentioned them buying the bankrupt assets of Silicon Valley Bank. First Republic, though, up about 12.5% right now. Some of the more embattled Western regional banks like PacWest, Western Alliance also up as well. Even broker-dealer Charles Schwab up 2.5% amid the fallout from SVB. And speaking of, just to kind of put things in context for you and the viewers out there, Kelly, look at the Spider Regional Bank ETF, the ticker KRE. We are still, though, up 1% today, but off roughly 33% from the highs that we saw just back in early February. So, yes, stability, but there's a long way to go, Kel. Back I, over I'm just going to say, Dom, this isn't much of a relief rally. You know, I, maybe it was earlier on, but regional bank ETF, like you just highlighted, up 1% after and, the collapses we've seen. And by the way, we are drifting towards session lows right now for that yeah. ETF. Something to keep in mind. Absolutely. Dom, come on over, uh, Dom Chu. You might think, given the series of bank collapses we've seen, that the overall markets would be struggling more. But they've actually held up remarkably well. You just heard we're on track for our fifth update out of six. We'll see if we stay there. CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli has more for us. Mike, what are you hearing about this? 
Yeah, Kelly, and up 3% in the S&P year-to-date, not even a quarter of the way through the year. You would have taken it probably at the outset. But I think what it comes down to is how we define the market. Because as Dom was just saying, those huge, bulky tech stocks have really obscured a lot of the damage and the reset that's happened below the surface. Uh, you know, the equal-weighted S&P, I always point to, it's actually had a 10% pullback from the February high. It's closer to the October low than to that February high. So there has been some churn lower. Uh, it just hasn't been in the index as much because, you know, Microsoft added more than $200 billion of market cap in the last couple of weeks. That's more than all regional banks combined right now. So that just tells you the effect of that narrowing tight market. Today, you see some mean reversion. Now, there is another explanation, which I do think there's at least some residual hope in the equity market that we bought ourselves a Fed pause nearer than we thought. And maybe the cost of that isn't going to be so onerous. We don't know if the market's going to get called on that position, uh, if, in fact, they're uh, kind of just not getting the joke at this point. But I do think that some of that is in there. Also, sentiment and positioning already very cautious, even going into uh, the SVB collapse. So I think there wasn't a whole lot of over-optimism to get bled out of the system just yet. And keep in mind, everything that's gone on, the lows of the recent uh, pullback, have been at the down 20% level from all-time highs and levels first reached a couple of years ago. It doesn't mean it can't go a lot lower, but it tells you that we're not starting from kind of a, a way out on a limb of bullishness. Oh, sure. We're kind of just kind of, it's like a boat on the waves. You just keep <laughs> hitting yeah. those, uh, those levels. Mike, thank you, Mike Santoli. My next guests aren't so convinced the markets will remain calm here. Joining me now are Jeff Kleintop, the Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, and Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer at the Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. I brought Dom Chu over as well, as I mentioned. Uh, Dom, appreciate it. So, Jeff, let me start with you, because if I'm not mistaken, you're bullish on the banks here? Well, I mean, I think you can buy banks here, but I think more importantly, you want to look at European financials. They've outperformed U.S. financials by 10 percentage points, and it's true internationally overall. International stocks are outperforming today. They outperformed last week, year to date, and last year as well. It's what we call a trend in this business, and I think it's one you want to focus on. Low price to cash flow companies, including in financials, outperforming. I'm, I'll let you, you probably can say this faster than I can bring up the chart, but I was going to ask Jeff, how good of an investment have European banks been over a 5, 10, 15, 20 year period of time? Oh, they've been awful. <laughs> and one of the reasons for that is the fiscal austerity in Europe that weighed on them for a long period of time. Uh, so many different problems as they rolled through the European debt. 2011 and 2012, but we've started a new cycle, and new cycles mean new leadership for behavioral and fundamental reasons. European financial trading at six times earnings, and they're actually, you know, the data that we're seeing is actually encouraging as it relates to the economic front. We just got the German IFO data today. That's an assessment of the German economy. Came in not only better than economists expected, but better than any time in the past year, showing improving economic momentum. I think the concerns are going to return to inflation and growth being too strong rather than worries about a financial crisis. One more question on this, Jeff. Are these trades for you kind of a, a, an opportunistic, you know, get in, get out quick as sentiment improves? Or do you now think these companies are investable for a year, a couple of years, a longer period of time? Yeah, the latter. I do think this is a longer period trade. I, I shouldn't even say trade, an investment. I think, again, focusing on low price to cash flow and international equities out of favor for a long time, a real opportunity for long-term investors. Peter, I know in the past you've talked about looking at maybe some energy names, if I'm not mistaken, in Europe. What about the banks here? Well, the European Bank Stock Index is down about 75% from its peak in 2007. 
And most of the big ones trade well below book value. So there is tremendous value there. It's just a question of whether it's going to be realized any time soon. So, but I do agree. I, th I think there, there's a bastion of value to be had there. Uh, and finally, European banks have, have positive nominal interest rates. I mean, negative interest rates was uh, a killer for European banks. It was a tax on capital. And just having some of the yield curve in positive territory would be beneficial to European banks. And to your point about energy, the uh, large European energy companies are trading at half the value as U.S. ones. So we like those as well. And I just wanted to lay that, that backdrop, Dom, as we start to turn our attention here to the U.S., it's, you know, in some cases, U.S. banks have done better and others not. You know, we were talking the other day about Morgan Stanley kind of having gone nowhere over the past two decades. And that's one of the best of the best. So when I spoke with an investor a couple weekends ago in the middle of all this turmoil and said to him, you know, would you be picking up some of the banks on the big sell off here? He said, no, they're still overvalued. He's not looking for them to go above. To, he's like, somebody shouldn't be trading at book because their book is bad. That's what we're learning from the from this crisis. So it's I, I just don't know. You, you mentioned the reaction of the bank stocks as the day goes on. And it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of people really excited right no, now. I, and, and that's the point. I, I think every time you've seen some of these rallies kind of happen, they've been met with some fading momentum, either intraday or over the next, say, two or three days past some of those big rallies. It speaks a little bit more to just how much price discovery is going on for these U.S. banks because there isn't yet a lot of clarity, despite the massive amount of government intervention and regulation now on the heels of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and their collapse. You still don't know whether or not the book values, those carrying costs for those assets, really are something that you should be paying for or paying a discount for. Remember, sure. if you look at the rescue that just happened for First Citizens and SIVB, they t paid a discount to acquire those assets. So it, it, it's not to say that in a distressed situation, every regional bank should be marked lower, but there is still a, a moment of pause that a lot of people are feeling right now. And by the way, this is all playing out in this kind of reversal that we've seen over the course of the last year, where the value stocks were supposed to keep that momentum higher this year, and they're just not. Right. Energy and financials, two of the worst performers in 2023. Meanwhile, tech and comm services, as we showed you in the top of the hour, the real outperformers. You wonder here. if that's about to reverse. You know, just even is today a microcosm of that, Peter? I'll let you weigh in. Energy outperforming, tech is lagging, uh, or maybe it's just a pause. Well, pe people piled into tech, of course, over the past couple of weeks, thinking that they were somehow safe havens, not realizing that all their customers, uh, small, medium, and even large-sized businesses, were about to see a notable slowdown. So that was just a rotational thing more than anything. I think what's very interesting today is the stock market reaction to first citizens. The stock's up 50%. And that tells you that a lot of M&A can take place within the small and regional banks that can cure a lot of the ills of the badly managed banks. And we can somehow get through this without this blanket uh, coverage on uninsured deposits that some are calling for. And by, by the way, Kelly, to, to speak to Peter's point there, there's a, there's a reason why it's also kind of foaming its way through the fundamental case here. Earlier this morning, we had analysts over at Baird downgrade Caterpillar shares. And oh, how am I going to link this to the, uh -huh. financial, uh, to the financial woes that we have? One of the reasons why was they were saying that U.S. non-residential construction was already facing headwinds going forward. The regional bank crisis, in their mind, in their estimation, is now going to put a little bit more of a freeze or a, a little bit of a freeze 
on those regional banks who do a lot of construction lending. If that, were to, if that were to happen, what happens to the construction activity? It starts to maybe slow down even more, which affects companies like Caterpillar and United Rentals, who leases a lot of that equipment out. So th there are reverberations that are happening outside of the financials and the banks. Absolutely. So, Jeff, let me turn to you as we kind of put this back in the context of the broader markets here. Um, has Is this just, I forget how Goldman put this earlier uh, just today. They said, a headwind, not a hurricane, all of the drama we're living through. Would you agree with that? It's fair. I mean, we're in a rolling recession, right? We've been in a manufacturing and trade recession, but construction and retail uh, and services have been doing well. We may now start to see a downturn in, you know, we just, just talked about construction, right? So maybe in retail and maybe in services, we start to see a bit of a rollover, even as manufacturing has shown some signs in the PMI surveys to be picking up again. So we are in a rolling recession. It's not over anytime soon. The banks are braced for that in terms of their valuations. Other parts of the market may not be. Where would you real quick be looking? Uh, you know, if we talk about, I don't know if it's, I don't know how you want to kind of, you know, pay, parse through everything, but where do you think has the most opportunity? I think it's really simple. It's a low price to cash flow screen. I mean, Peter talked about some of the areas that are attractive. I think energy falls into that category. But look at companies that have strong current cash flow, not those that have great cash flow growth potentially in the future. That will be tech. That might work if the Fed aggressively has to reverse course and cut interest rates. That doesn't seem likely to me in this stubborn inflation environment. So focus on low price to cash flow across sectors and across countries. All right, we'll leave it there. So much news. We've got Groomberg headlines. We've got Netanyahu headlines. We've got an auction to get through. You guys, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Jeff Kleintop, Peter Bookvar, and of course, Dom Chu. Let's turn to Rick Santelli and start with that auction. Uh, two year, I think it was. Rick, how'd it go over? Yes, two years to be exact, 42 billion of them kicking off a trifecta of supply twos, five sevens, that'll equal 120 billion. How did it start off? Horribly weak. That's how. A D minus, dog minus. This was one not pretty auction from top to bottom. As you look at an intraday of twos, you could clearly see the market voted. So 3.954 is the yield. It's the first yield at an auction for twos that's under 4% since August, so last summer. And if you consider the fact that most of the metrics were just horribly weak, uh, the worst bid to cover since August, uh, November of 21 at 2.44. The 10 auction average is 2.62. But what's really fascinating here is why didn't investors flock to this? Well, maybe it's because the banks are doing better today. Maybe it's the FDIC story. But one thing I can tell you for sure, based on all the rumblings I've been hearing all weekend and this morning, it's probably more of avoidance than it is about a statement that they're thinking that yields are going to go straight back up been an awful lot of volatility. I think traders rather forego the auction and monitor the secondary market. Kelly, back to you. Thank you very much. 4.008. That's the two-year. Uh, coming up, backing the banks. Is there more rescue money on the way? And what could it cost lawmakers to strike a deal on Capitol Hill? Goldman's chief political economist is on deck. But first, while TikTok's CEO was being grilled on Capitol Hill, Apple's CEO was making his first known trip to China since the pandemic. We'll tell you why. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. As we mentioned, the Nasdaq underperforming down half a percent today. Russell's are up 1% as the regional banks rebound somewhat. Tenure back to 352, S&P at 39.77. We're only up seven points. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Only 48 hours after the TikTok CEO's grilling on Capitol Hill, Apple CEO Tim Cook made his first known visit to Beijing since the pandemic to attend the state-sponsored China Development Forum. And Alibaba co-founder Jack Ma has also resurfaced in the mainland after spending more than a year away and largely out of public view. These high-profile appearances come amid Beijing's efforts to boost its economy and restore confidence in the business sector. But at the same time, last week authorities raided the offices of U.S. company Mintz Group and detained five employees. So what message is Beijing sending really? Our Eunice Yoon is there covering the CEO summit where Cook appeared. She joins us now alongside Brian Sullivan, who has details on a newly announced multi-billion dollar investment in China by Saudi Aramco. Welcome to both of you. Eunice, let's start with you. And what are you hearing? Well, uh, Beijing wants, Kelly, uh, CEOs to uh, make sure that they hear that uh, this country is dedicated to an open China. Uh, The uh, president, uh, President Xi Jinping's chief of staff, read a letter at the forum that was from his boss in effort to try to reassure the audience that China really does welcome international business. Now, in public, the bosses of Apple, of Pfizer, of uh, Bridgewater, as well as um, others, had um, expressed their support for China's growth. In fact, uh, Tim Cook had uh, said at one of the side sessions that Apple and China have had a symbiotic kind of relationship. Also, Pfizer's Albert Burla uh, told me that the drug giant was aligned with China's Healthy 2030 initiative and would contribute as much as it could. Uh, The forum, though, couldn't escape the worries about the souring U.S.-China relationship. Uh, Not only were uh, many fewer uh, U.S. CEOs here for the forum this year, but also the mood at the forum was very pessimistic. Kelly? Many fewer CEOs. So the fact that Tim Cook showed up is even a bigger deal. Why did most people stay home? Well, a lot of people decided to stay home because they were concerned about the geopolitical situation. Um, There were so many uh, people and companies that were saying to me that they just felt like it would be a really bad look. The optics would be terrible for D.C. when um, D.C. and Congress is holding a lot of hearings about U.S.-China relations. So that's one thing that's been on people's minds. Also, uh, the, the overall business climate is something that uh, a lot of companies are are worrying about and seeing as a risk. You mentioned the Mintz Group. Um, they're not the only ones. A Japanese drug maker just in the past couple of days has said that one of its employees has also been detained, and they're working with the Japanese authorities to try to, to figure out exactly why uh, the Chinese authorities decided to take that person. So a lot of risk here and a lot of um, reassessment 
of what kind of relationship companies need to have with China. How do they spin it in or frame it, I guess I should say, when someone like Tim Cook shows up there? Um, how does who frame it? You mean the Chinese government? Yes, or the media, yes. Oh, oh yeah, no, everybody's playing it up here. Um, they've actually been comparing uh, the, the foreign ministry just a couple of uh, hours ago had actually put side-by-side photos of Tim Cook um, being greeted by people, shaking their hands, uh, whereas uh, Sho Chu, the TikTok CEO, is being... Um, you know, from a Chinese perspective, um, unfairly uh, questioned by Congress. So the foreign ministry put out those two, two, two um, photos and said, um, and asked the question, which one is more friendly to foreign business? So um, they're definitely using uh, Tim Cook's visit here um, for mileage when it comes to uh, their propaganda campaign. Very, very interesting. Eunice, thanks. Our Eunice Yoon reporting. That's not all out of China today. Beijing also inking this big deal with Saudi Aramco to expand a refinery and supply more oil. Brian Sullivan is here with that. What's the angle here, you think, Brian? Money. I, I think that might be the angle. And the increased tie-up, Kelly, between you know Saudi Arabia and China. We know that the East is kind of coming together. It's really kind of two deals that are both oil-related. Uh, uh, number one, you've got Aramco agreeing to spend a bunch of money and expand a refinery in China, also increasing their investment in a joint venture over a petrochemical plant. Because when you run the petrochemical plant, or at least have an ownership stake in it, you can ensure a flow of oil needed to do it. So a refinery over here, petrochemicals over here. Looking at the numbers, Kelly, some analysis says this could be more than one million barrels extra per day of oil from sold by Saudi Arabia into China. Of course, all this follows Xi Jinping's visit to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in December. Now, ironically, this Aramco deal may hurt Russia. Russia had been, even still, China's biggest oil supplier. Previously, Saudi Arabia took that back. This should put them on over the top. So you do wonder, Kelly, if this will possibly increase a little bit of tension between Riyadh and Moscow. Time will tell, but China, Beijing and Riyadh certainly coming together on a big oil deal. Why is crude up so much today, Brian? 4% jump back up above 70? That seems significant. Yeah, listen, okay, on, the, on that side, there's been a lot of stuff under the hood. I know Pip has talked about this as well on what's going on with the price of oil. A lot of this is paper stuff, right? This is the dollar moving, interest rates. It is hedge funds bidding down the price of the oil paper contracts there is disconnects between the physical delivery, as there always tends to be, Kelly, and this. I, I will say this, though. There was, a, there was a report out of RBC Capital Markets today. Michael Tran and his team doing a great job. They work with Halima Croft, who, by the way, will be on last call tonight. They said that kind of quietly, Kelly, the world is adding more oil refining capacity than any time since 1977. Hmm. Between a refinery expansion in Texas, Mexico, Nigeria, the one we just talked about, RBC says nearly 4 million barrels a day could come online by the end of next year, which we'll see Sounds if it bearish. does. Kelly, but I mean, what does that tell you? It tells me that, well, bearish, but also they see demand for oil being strong. You don't invest like that unless you see demand. By the way, we'll talk about that with Halima tonight. And a big new report from Goldman Sachs that the Inflation Reduction Act could end up costing three to four times mm -hmm. the government estimates. 
Yes, and then they say, but maybe pay off three to four times. Who, who knows? But uh, I can't wait for you guys to dig through it. Brian, thanks for your time today. Thanks. Brian All Sullivan. Right. Coming up, it's been half a year since that Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And as the government begins to dole out the cash, we're taking a look at some of the forgotten, quote unquote, electricity stocks that stand to benefit. They're already outperforming the S&P this year. We'll tell you which ones. Plus, key hearings on the SVB fallout this week. We'll speak with Congressman Jim Himes, who's on the House Financial Services Committee, about what moves D.C. may or may not make from here. We're getting headlines from prepared testimony already. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with only about six names in the red today. Nike's the worst performer, J.P. Morgan. One of the names leading the way, IBM, too. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. As we just showed you, IBM, J.P. Morgan, those are some of the names keeping the Dow in the green today. The S&P has now turned higher. So just a moment ago, we were pretty much at session lows, but the S&P is now up 13 and the Nasdaq is still down about half a percent. If you're wondering what's dragging it down, take a look at some of the biggest laggards. Alphabet in particular here, that stock down almost 3 percent. We also see Pinduoduo down, so some Chinese tech pressure there. Rivian, uh, Meta lower today as well. But in terms of Alphabet, the CFTC, oh no, (laughs) that's the end of the story with Alphabet. The CFTC is filing a complaint against Binance, meantime, alleging that the crypto company violated federal law to solicit U.S. users for millions in revenue. That's why we also have some pressure across the crypto ecosystem today, including Coinbase, which just last week got that Wells notice, remember, from the SEC, warning of potential securities charges. Stock was already down. It's shedding 10% again today. Bitcoin is back to just above 27K. Also, Disney CEO Bob Iger telling employees the company will begin those previously announced layoffs this week, the first of three rounds of cuts that will amount to 7,000 job losses by the beginning of summer. Again, this news already priced in to some extent the stock up 1% today. They said they plan to cut $5.5 billion in costs in total, including $3 billion in content spend. For the full details on Disney, head over to CNBC.com pro. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. And we begin with sad news at this hour. It has happened again in America. At least three children and one adult are dead after a shooter opened fire at a private Christian school outside Nashville, Tennessee. The shooter is also dead after engaging with police. The names and ages of the victims and the gunmen have not yet been released, but the school serves students from preschool through the sixth grade. The remains of two more victims have been discovered in connection with Friday's chocolate factory explosion in Pennsylvania. The death toll now seven. The cause of the explosion not known. The factory was owned by R.M. Palmer Company, which makes several chocolate products, including bunnies. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has agreed to pause his controversial plan to overhaul the country's judicial system until the next parliament session kicks off next month. This news comes after mass protests and a strike broke out in response to the controversial plan. Critics say the proposal would threaten the independence of the Supreme Court and limit judges' powers. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you, and I'll see you soon. Coming up, all eyes on uninsured deposits after the fallout from SVB. So far, the Treasury has stepped up. Goldman says they'll continue to do so. We'll hear exactly how and why next. 
and throughout the month of March are celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is Girls Who Code founder Reshma Sajouni. The advice that I would give to women as a CEO is that all of us have power. Our job is to find it and use it for good. As the founder of Girls Who Code, I used my power to teach girls to code so that they could find a cure to COVID, climate, and cancer. And now as the founder and CEO of Moms First, I'm using my power to make sure that workplaces finally work for women so that we don't have to choose between our job and our child. All of us have the ability to make a difference, to use our power to make a change. Welcome back. We've got a news alert from the FDIC. Chair Martin Grunberg's prepared remarks ahead of tomorrow's Senate hearing about the SVB collapse. He says the FDIC received only one valid offer to buy Silicon Valley Bank the deposits the weekend after it failed a couple of weekends ago. And that offer would have cost more than estimated liquidation costs. Grunberg also said the 10 largest deposit accounts at SVB held $13 billion in total, a little more actually. And it's not exactly clear what will happen to SVB's deposits above that FDIC cap right now. My next guest says the Treasury has the capacity to provide a backstop for uninsured deposits if it becomes necessary, but warns the political hurdles to get to that guarantee will be high. Let's bring in Alec Phillips. He's chief political economist at Goldman Sachs. Alec, great to see you again. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Let me just start with, do we know for sure that SVB depositors are 100% protected in this acquisition now or, or what happens to funds above the cap? Do you know? So uh, I haven't heard anything new specific to the SVB situation, but I think, you know, the FDIC has made it very clear uh, that they intend to protect uninsured depositors in not just that resolution, but potentially any resolutions going forward, at least in the near term, for essentially any banks. So I think right now, uh, the odds of uninsured depositors losing funds are, you know, really pretty low. The other interesting aspect of this takeover is that the FDIC will participate in some upside here uh, from the bank, uh, I guess from its turnaround, we could call it, which I, was it AIG back during the financial crisis? I mean, I kind of hark back to that period when I think the government benefited quite substantially from AIG's eventual recovery. Given that $20 billion that the FDIC is on the hook for, you wonder if their upside should have actually been more than the kind of half a billion dollars it sounds like. Well, I mean, I think the, you know, the history of these things is that traditionally um, over time, the government does actually uh, come out better than expected. I think in this case, it, you know, it's a little bit different only because uh, the FDIC deposit insurance fund is likely to take, um, you know, a hit at least in the near term from this, and then we'll see what happens. Um, but that's, you know, but that's what the uh, the insurance fund is there for. What happens to the insurance fund itself? And I, I take your point from your first comment that it was the implicit backstop of all deposits that has kind of stopped the banking deposit flight we've witnessed. But who's going to ultimately pay for that backstop? And do you expect Congress to make it explicit? Well, so that's, you know, that's the challenge. Uh, so on the first question, I mean, the answer is the banks. Um, hmm. To the extent that uh, the insurance fund is drawn down through any you know, further resolutions, the banks will have to cover that probably through a special assessment. Uh, but that's, you know, that's all bank money. That's not taxpayer money. There is, you know, sort of a bigger question of if this doesn't work, if depositors 
ultimately don't have you know full confidence in their deposits because some of them are uninsured, you know, then at that point the Treasury might consider stepping in. I you know right now it seems pretty unlikely that that would happen, but it's possible at some point, depending on you know how things unfold, that they might come back to that. That gets tricky because that actually does then involve uh, taxpayer funds. How much money do you expect the FDIC to try to raise from the banks? And how will it further impact, you know, profitability right now for the smaller ones looks pretty bad. You know, even for the larger ones who had to turn to the discount window, that's extremely expensive funding. It looks like they've been raising cash through other kind of expensive means. Profitability doesn't look great. We should probably expect further mergers. We don't even know what's going to happen with commercial real estate. So uh, how much money are they looking to raise and where's that going to come from? Well, so, you know, right now, um, they don't necessarily need to raise that much because this actually hasn't, in the grand scheme of things, cost the FDIC that much. Mm -hmm. uh, their balance going into this was around $125 billion in the insurance fund. So this takes them down to maybe closer to $100 billion. They might have to raise that back. But we've now seen probably the cost of these two resolutions more or less. So from here, it's really just a question of whether there are you know, additional uh, problems at other banks that end up imposing costs on the, uh, on the insurance fund. But right now, it's not, you know, it's not clear that that's going to happen. So the question now going forward, this is going to be isolated uh, as it was to the kind of uh, you know, massive rate hikes and, and management fallout and all the rest of it. In general, I mean, broadly speaking, Alec, what do you think people with balances of 400K, 600K, I don't know what it might be for a business, are going to do going forward? Are they going to need an explicit guarantee from the FDIC, these CFOs, these treasurers, whoever's making these decisions, um, even for wealthy individuals? Are we going to enshrine this or not? So, I mean, that's the question, right? So you have, I think you have sort of two issues. You have businesses that have to run uh, larger balances in some accounts, transaction accounts, in order to make payroll and do all of the other things uh, that they need to do. And then you have uh, large balances uh, on the household side that aren't necessarily uh, doing that sort of thing. And so if you look through Fed data, what you can see is that there probably are you know, a few trillion dollars of business-related balances. And probably a lot of that is uninsured. And so I think that's going to be a focus. Um, the concern around that is that those might be a little bit more flighty. And so to the extent that we see things uh, start to uh, become a little bit more uncertain again, those are the deposits that I think people worry more about. The other question, though, is on the high income or high net worth household deposits. That's actually probably a bigger chunk of the total uninsured deposits, but oh, wow. it's generally seen to be, you know, maybe a little less uh, flighty. Question there is over time, do those deposits seek out higher yields elsewhere? And, you know, back to your comment about, you know, sort of the medium term prospect for bank earnings, I think that's a question that people are going to start thinking about. Absolutely. And then the final issue to resolve in all of this is the moral hazard one, because quite simply, if there's an expectation that deposits are federally backstopped across all sizes, if, if something isn't spelled out with more detail and I'm a bank executive, well, there's really not much for me to lose. I mean, there's going to be an arms race uh, for profitability for people who are aware of the risk of going under, but hope that, you know, worst case, it's not like their depositors are going to face a problem. So I think, you know, Congress has a challenge here because there is already 
essentially a de facto unlimited guarantee for right now. Mm -hmm. And the question is, at some point, will that go away? Um, you know, when, when we get into this sort of a situation, one would expect that maybe regulators, the Treasury, FDIC, et cetera, come back and, you know, and essentially uh, announce that, at least in the short run, they will probably guarantee uh, all deposits again. The problem is it's not explicit. And so there's always that small amount of uncertainty there. And that's sort of the difference between a guarantee and just sort of a strong commitment. Yeah. And, you know, at some point, they're going to have to figure this out. I'm just not optimistic right now that Congress in the next couple of months, few months, is going to be able to do that. Does that leave us at all prone, for instance, if another bank comes out with a bad quarter because of, you know, fill in the blank asset problem, that this problem creeps up again? Or do you think the implicit guarantee will, will force to make that well, not likely? Yeah, I mean, I think it's unclear at this point. So what we what we do know is that deposit outflows seem to have slowed somewhat. And I should say the data we got from the Fed, uh, which was a little bit lagged, but the data that we got from the Fed late last week probably indicated that they were a little less than what people would have expected. Hmm. With that said, you know, it's not an explicit guarantee. And if you're the CFO of a large company uh, that has a lot of uninsured deposits, you probably do have to think about that. So, you know, I think the question now is not so much do we face any kind of, you know, acute near-term risk, more about just sort of the process over the next several quarters and whether all of those deposits stay put or whether they do slowly move away. All right, Alec, thank you so much uh, for all the granularity, especially uh, as we prepare for these hearings in the next couple of days. We appreciate it. Thanks. Alec Phillips of Goldman. Still ahead, if you're looking for clean energy stocks that pay dividends and aren't too reliant on subsidies or tax credits, you might want to consider this name. Up 13% year-to-date, handily outperforming the S&P. We'll reveal it and whether there's more room to run next. Welcome back. If you're looking for some stocks that can withstand a recession thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, you don't have to be limited to just the EV and solar plays. Some of the key names are electric and equipment companies that have already been outperforming this year. Pippa Stevens. 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 <laughs> Pippa Stevens is all over it. Hi, Pippa. Welcome. Hello, Kelly. Thank you. Well, when you think about the energy transition, the first thing that probably comes to mind is solar, wind, electric vehicles, things like that. But those depend on a reimagined electric grid, which is really the backbone of the energy transition and net zero goals. Annual investment in power transmission and distribution needs to expand from $260 billion today to $820 billion by the end of this decade, according to the International Energy Agency. In the U.S., transmission needs to grow 60 percent by 2030 and roughly triple by 2050. The Inflation Reduction Act and its some $370 billion for climate initiatives is a big part of this. But while the specifics of that bill are still being hammered out, there are a number of under-the-radar beneficiaries quietly outperforming the broader market this year. That includes electric and equipment companies that Bernstein calls the picks and shovels of the energy transition. It's names like Quanta Services, Maztec, Acom, and Jacob Solutions, which build transmission lines. There's also companies like Schneider Electric, Eaton, and ABB, which help with energy management systems. But of course, Kelly, the biggest hurdle here is really just getting these projects built. Yes, true. Although it's, it seems apparent, I mean, you've done a ton of reporting on this, wouldn't you say that this is quickly becoming the most important factor for so many different companies and commodities even, you know, all kind of built up on this 
kind of yet-to-be-built-out ecosystem. Yeah, there are a lot of hopes being pinned on this transition and how it touches on everything from raw materials to construction to utilities. But I think the main thing is that we first need clarity from the Treasury on what this actually looks like, and then it really is permitting reform. When mm, I was at Sarah true. Week down in Houston, executives from every single part of the energy transition, energy, old energy, new energy, all talked about how you can't get anything built here, and particularly for transmission lines with so many stakeholders involved, Absolutely. no one wants to pay. What was the, was it banana? No, it was, there was uh, Yimby and NIMBY. And banana, banana is NIMBY 2.0. Banana stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody. <laughs> right, right. And it just, I mean, it, you know, it's a funny, it's a funny kind of But it's saying. a sad reality. I, yeah, it, it's the fact that when you have so many stakeholders involved, nobody wants to pay. There's so much paperwork. There's so much oversight. And then at the government, there's a lot of different agencies these things have to go through. So it's not relaxing permitting, but it's just kind of streamlining uh, yeah, it. exactly streamlining it and speeding it up. What was the mystery chart we showed? It was uh, Quantus oh, services, Quantus. I believe. Yes. Not the airline. No. no. Okay. <laughs> That's Quantas. This is Quantas. Got it. Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. Still ahead, regional banks are rebounding today as First National scoops up SVB's deposits and branches. First Republic surging about 20%. Actually, it's all the way down to an 11% gain right now. Other bank gains much more muted as well, and it's all the day before bank regulators start two days of testimony on the Hill. House Financial Services Committee member Jim Himes tells us whether he thinks Congress will lift the FDIC cap next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tomorrow, Congress kicks off two days of hearings on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank with the focus on regulators and what they missed. FDIC Chair Martin Grunberg, Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr, we've had all their testimony out already. Treasury Undersecretary for Domestic Finance Nellie Lang. They'll all testify before the Senate Banking Committee tomorrow, House Financial Services on Wednesday. Joining me now, one of the lawmakers looking for answers, Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut, a House Financial Services member, correct? Congressman, welcome. That's right. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, it's good to see you again. And I mean, it's hard not to cut right to the chase and say, so are you going to raise the cap or not? Or is there going to be a tiered approach? I, I mean, <laughs> we can't kind of go on forever with this implicit guarantee. A former colleague maybe of yours, you maybe just heard Alec Phillips say we can't go on forever with this implicit uh, backstop of, of all deposits in the country. Yeah, yeah, obviously we can't go back, we can't go on forever, and that's not what this is designed to do any more than the uh, extraordinary measures that were put into place in 2009 were designed to last forever. I think, um, I mean, let me, let, me, let me also cut to the chase, which is no, I don't think Congress is going to act to lift the cap on, uh, on deposits. I, I think um, there have been proposals, obviously, and the emergency activity was the emergency activity. But look, I think there's some really tough issues around this, uh, um, including whether, you know, who would pay and how could you insure every dollar of deposit um, right now, what I can tell you, obviously, there's a lot of policy issues. Um, you know, there's not a lot of direction in an already divided Congress. So I think that that's uh, going to be a lot less the focus of tomorrow's hearing. Uh, tomorrow's hearing, I think, is largely going to be about what went wrong and what can be learned so that it doesn't happen again. Well, I mean, learned so that it doesn't happen again, it kind of all comes down to the FDIC cap or lack thereof, right? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you had a management team that was presumably well-paid, experienced bankers that didn't understand something that your 17-year-old in a high school finance class understands, which is that when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. That's pretty esoteric to a lot of people out there, but that is probably the very first thing you learn in high school finance. And yet, you know, rising interest rates were no mystery. They were not hidden from anybody. Uh, so there's an awful lot to unpack about how that was allowed to happen. And secondly, look, we know that the San Francisco Federal Reserve in particular was in 
in frequent communication with Silicon Valley Bank, including raising all sorts of risk management issues. I guess that's good, but the question, the obvious question is, how do you raise these issues in a timely fashion? Because clearly they weren't raised or they weren't acted upon in a timely fashion. I think, look, I think that the, the deposit insurance number, that's something we should talk about, but that is not core, I think, to understanding what happened and doing what we need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. If you've got a lot more than the insured deposits at a depository, you know, a deposit insert at a, at a bank, um, if you've got, a, you know, a, a billion dollars of deposits, you better understand that uh, $750 million of those deposits are not uh, insured and act accordingly. But if I'm not mistaken, regional banks on average only have 50% insured deposits. So it's not like SVB was that, you know, they were at 92, but of the banks, broadly speaking, in this country, only half of their deposits are insured. And we know that it might be, you know, uh, bonds one day, it could be commercial real estate office space the next that creates losses. It could just be literally people buying treasuries and sucking deposits out that force people to realize any other kinds of losses. So I guess that's why I keep coming back to the cap. I mean, I know you don't want it kind of this blanket uh, guarantee more broadly, but would you support something like a one year guarantee while the details are worked out? Look, I think we have effectively have certainly a guarantee of the institutions that have been guaranteed. As you pointed out earlier, you know, the banking sector seems to be stabilizing. Hopefully this stuff can come off sooner rather than later. But let me just tell you my own bias. My own bias is that treasurers who get paid an awful lot of money to do what they do inside, inside private corporations should be acting prudently. And keeping massive quantities of deposits in banks that are uninsured is not prudent behavior, especially since you've got all sorts of other alternatives in the form of short-term treasuries in the form of money markets, et cetera. Now, there's no question, by the way, this raises an interesting policy issue. This will almost certainly have the effect of migrating some uninsured deposits away from the small and medium banks. That we right. need to grapple with. That we need to grapple with because that may lead to further concentration, and that's sort of an uncomfortable thing. But as you can probably tell, I'm not willing right now to say, but obviously the example is that we should create a lot more insurance with all of the potential for moral hazard that would exist. Right, but so if Stanford Bank, you know, Darien, if one of these kinds of local mom-and-pop institutions runs into problems, you wouldn't support the depositors above the FDIC cap getting their money back? Well, in an emergency situation, absolutely, right, which is exactly what the government did in the, in the middle of March. Whether we want to say, you know, and there's proposals to increase the uh, FDIC insured amount, uh, there's proposals to lift the cap entirely, that to me seems that we should be thinking about. Look, I want banks competing partly based on their prudence. And if you have a full guarantee of all deposits, that competition, which I think is very healthy, um, comes off the table. So again, in an emergency, of course, I want to make sure people aren't, uh, uh, aren't hurt badly. Uh, but we're talking about here, you know, the long run, the, yeah. the, the, where we finally settle after the dust settles here. Well, we look forward to hearing more uh, from the uh, authorities involved. Congressman, thanks for your time today on the eve of that. We appreciate it. Thank you. Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut. We mentioned earlier that CFTC sued against Binance, and we just got a statement from the company itself saying, in part, the complaint is unexpected and disappointing, but they intend to continue to collaborate with regulators. Over the past two years, they've made significant investments to not have uh, U.S. users active on their platform. Again, Binance defending itself on a day when crypto is broadly in the red, other exchanges like Coinbase as well. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 